you have to be somewhat insane to want to be president, certifiably insane, that, that, you, that there's a part of you that is so narcissistic that you want it so bad that, that you're willing to do anything it takes to get there. So no matter what, whoever we elect is a sick, twisted individual. <laughs> Welcome to You Are the Guest, a weekly show where you can be the guest and tell people what you and your friends and neighbors think about news events and issues of the day. It's part talk show, part opinion poll, part reality show, and a whole lot of fun. And it's completely dependent upon your participation as a guest. To be considered as a guest for a future show, check out the website at www.youaretheguest.com for details. Now here's your program host, Bill Grady. Greetings from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa, and welcome to show number 59 of You Are the Guest, the show where we talk to everyday people just like you and me about their lives and about the issues of the day. Our guest today joins us from Detroit, Michigan. Tom, welcome to You Are the Guest. Good evening, Bill. Tom, tell our audience about yourself. Well, I'm a 35-year-old, married with a with uh, one little five-year-old boy, uh, live just outside of Detroit, work in Detroit every day, and uh, have a little show called uh, the Left Wing Nut Job Podcast. And we played your promo back in July. Yep, appreciated that. So how did you come up with the name Left Wing Nut Job Podcast? Well, I, I have the good fortune of uh, working with... Uh, a couple of guys who are, they're, they're brilliant programmers. They're brilliant. Uh, um, we, we bounce ideas off of each other all the time. We go, go out to lunch or something, and I'd actually had the domain name for about a year, and it just came to me one day thinking, you know, I, you know is that available? Let's go ahead and I go ahead and check, and it was available, and I grabbed it. And I wanted to do, and I guess it was back in, uh, I guess it was in the fall of, or the late summer of 2005 when, you know, iTunes came out and they released all the podcasting uh, features, I wanted to do something. And I'd done other kinds of political parody uh, websites before, and uh, I actually had an idea for something else, and I just kind of segued, well, I got this domain name, maybe I could do something with that. So I just kind of figured it had a really good commercial value to it, something that would grab people's attention. So that's why I went ahead and used it. How do you think people form their political views? I think it probably starts off uh, when you're children, when you grow up, um, as you're coming up. I know my parents always voted. Um, ironically enough, they never really shared any political v- uh, views with us. I have two younger brothers, um, but I always remember they voted, and I, and I remember that they always um, that was important to them. Um, but interestingly enough, politics really wasn't something that was talked around the table, but I think people probably form it initially with, with their parents and then with their social groups, and I think they kind of just they come into it that way. Do you see eye-to-eye politically with your wife? No. No, not, not on everything. Not on everything, and, and, but we're not... Uh, we don't fight like cats and dogs, but... But there's a, there's a lot of things that, that we don't we don't agree on, and, I, and there's the uh, I think in a, in a marriage you kind of come to a 
you know where the you know where that you've had that argument and there's no one's going to you're not going to move on your position and you just, you know, that's that and you respect the other person's opinion and and it doesn't def- it doesn't become a problem and it doesn't define your relationship you just you know cuz my wife is is opposed to abortion and I support the right to the right to choose and uh there's no there's not going to be any any way I see either of us changing our opinions on that so it's you know it's like a discussion that you have and and that's that and you don't go back to it it's an opinion, and that's okay. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think one of the problems we have in the country is is the inability for people to respect other people's opinions. Um, I have uh, a number of people who are who are conservative friends of mine, and and I'm happy to say that that we're able to respect each other's opinion. I, I think, like I said, I think that's one of the things missing from the discourse in this country that people are unable to, you know, politely or, or in some way um, respect other people's points of view. And, 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 and in giving them that respect, you can come to an understanding of where the other side is coming from, and then you can meet in the middle and, and do what's best for everybody around it. And essentially, you know, it comes down to compromise. And discussion is healthy, right? Absolutely. And that was one of the reasons why I was excited to be able to talk with you is because from listening to your show and just kind of knowing you from some of the podcasting forums, I thought Tom is a guy that I could have a really good political discussion with. And at the end of the discussion, it would be just, hey, that was fun. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it, and, and, and obviously when you, when you look at my show and you look at the title of my show, you can make some inferences very easily. You can make some assumptions, and and uh, and although my show started out as because I have a very dry sense of humor and I have a very subtle sense of humor, and some of the other uh, political websites and political um, parodies that I've done in the past um, that that pointed that that sort of nonchalant dry humor. It didn't really come across in in, in, a, in a visual medium, if you will. And so when I started out doing the show, I wanted to do something that had a lot of humor in it or had my kind of humor in it. And much to my surprise, the people who were listening to the show started saying, you know, you're doing a good job. I really like what you're saying. And it really became something where it, the show turned into something that, I did not expect it to turn into, whereas a lot of people say they get a lot of their news, political news, from me. They get a lot of their, uh, they hear a lot of stories that they don't, don't hear in mainstream media. Um, that's something I try to do, is, I, is, I, is, you know, there's a lot of things you can avoid. I mean, like the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict a few weeks back. I mean, you, you couldn't really uh, not avoid that and do a show. You couldn't avoid um, Hurricane Katrina, if you will. I mean... Right. If you didn't acknowledge that stuff, you'd they'd be saying, "Do you have your head in the sand?" Right. Exactly. I mean, you you have to acknowledge it. You have to you know at least make a make an effort to discuss that in the show because I, because what what has actually happened is has probably happened in some regards with uh, some people's other shows. I'd, I'd be I'd be almost uh, willing to bet that the audience to to a large degree drives the show. 
and and you want to be able to uh, give the audience what they want to what, what they would like because obviously you know they're, you're not, if your audience isn't there you know you you have nothing to do so when people started saying that you know you're 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 reporting political news and you're really you're really helping me understand these issues it's 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 very scary and it's very humbling but then it also makes you want to do a good job i pride myself on using multiple sources for my for my uh for my show um example uh, uh i i like i like making fun of katherine harris's senate campaign I, I i just find it amusing but if you read the recap on cnn.com or fox news you get a very sanitized eight nine paragraph a 10,000-foot overview of what's going on. I prefer to go to the, something like the Orlando Sentinel and read what the local reporters are writing. And, and therein you get the real details and you can actually form a, a bigger opinion. Like uh, another example, uh, yesterday the uh, Canadian, uh, there was an uh, inquest by the Canadian government which essentially cleared this gentleman who had been uh, seized in, in, the, in, in New York and he was sent back to... Uh, uh, to Syria, and he was tortured, and he was brought back to Canada. And uh, if you read the account on CNN, there's so many things that they chose to omit from the story. Now, maybe that's for case of brevity. Maybe that's for case of of, of for uh, keeping it keeping it streamlined. But when I sat there and I went and read back and, and gone back in the articles from like the Toronto Star and and, and, and read what had been going on. Uh, you really, you really haven't given your your readers at CNN a lot of uh, a lot of good information for them to understand the entire scope of what's going on, and that's one thing I try to do. I try to get all these different sources, and I try to and I try to do a good job, and I try to make sure that they're well referenced, they're well sourced, and that they're and that I can present something that's you know coherent and 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 entertaining as well as what I, was what I really try to do. Well, let's talk about some some politics, and let's have maybe a good-natured conversation about uh, where we think the country is going politically. All right. First of all, what are the Democrats offering that would make a voter say, yeah, those are the guys I want leading the fight against terrorism and al-Qaeda? Well, not a whole lot right now, unfortunately. Um, I think that the really the only thing... And this is one of my complaints with with what with, with Howard Dean has has not brought to the table for the Democrats is a real black and white choice. And unfortunately, when you have ninety nine percent of the Democrats siding with what has essentially become the policy of the country regarding the, regarding the war in Iraq and the war on terror, it's very difficult for them to come up with. Um, any kind of platform that draws a stark contrast between them and the Republicans. Unfortunately, I think really the only thing that they've got going for them is the public at large saying, you know what, this is going to be more of the same. Let's try to let's try to go with somebody else for a while. And unfortunately, that's not something that you can necessarily count on. A lot of things can happen between now and November. And and. You know, I wish the Democrats would do more. I think the only thing that they that they really have that that may resonate with people is that they 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 differ greatly with with the president and the Republican Party on the issue of uh, wiretaps 
and on the issue of uh, 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 detainees. Um, I think you're seeing the Democrats come out and saying that uh, we need to respect the Geneva Conventions. And, and, and to their credit, there's a lot of Republicans like Lindsey Graham who are saying, you know, we need to be mindful that we make any changes here, it, it, you're, you're going to, I think he said, was saying on uh, uh, one of the talk shows last Sunday that, you know, this isn't going to be the last war we fight. And if we make changes regarding this policy now, regarding the Geneva Conventions, we're going to be affecting things down the road. Um, so for the Democrats being able to offer anything different, unfortunately right now I don't think they have anything other than being, being opposed to the war, which in a lot of cases are hypocritical. Um, but they are making a stand on the issue of uh, the detainees and uh, uh, not having the detainees being able to get trials. And, uh, and uh, um, basically that's really all they have. Do you think that America will be able to filter out the extremes that the Democratic Party is sending out there? Because they, they really do have some high-powered people that are saying some really off-base stuff. I think that the country is, I think, I think the number is somewhere around 75% middle of the road, you know, right. moderate. Oh, absolutely. And I've always thought that the diehard Democrats are going to be there for their base, and the diehard Republicans are always going to be there for their base, but it's that majority middle that everybody's fighting over. And in the past few years, that moderate middle has said that the left is really out there, so I don't want to go there, so I choose the right. Would you agree or disagree with that? No, I, I, would, I, would, I would say you're, you're I, would, I would agree with that to some extent. I, what you were describing was like the 2020 rule. You've got the 20% that go with, the, like you said, the 20% the Republican base, the 20% the Democratic base. And that's why you see a lot of candidates try to come to the middle when they're running to try to attract those, those, uh, those voters. Unfortunately, I think where the Democrats have failed and continue to fail is on the issue of security. Um, and I, and I, it's not that I don't think it's for any other reason except that they're not willing to go out and grab the brass ring. I think by default, the, uh, the security issue has always been in the Republican camp. It's not been something that the Democrats can, can, can grab from them. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, People want to vote for you know, how they've always done it with their comfort, their comfort zone. Um, so I, I think that the, the Democrats have a lot of work to do. I think they could, uh, if they were willing to take some chances um, and come out and 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 make a a stand on on some issues regarding uh, the war on terror and make some really decent suggestions as to how we could do things differently, they would have a chance. I mean, I know. There's a lot of people who are. There's a lot of people who are saying that the polls look really good for the Democrats. Well, you can't sit there and coast for the next five weeks into November or however many weeks we've got now on the on the on the chance that the polls are gonna are still gonna uh, you know cut your way. I mean, there's you got to do a lot of work, and I'm just I'm just not seeing it out of the Democratic Party. How do you think the left views the Muslim world? I think that's a good question. Um, aside from the uh, stereotypical uh, view that the right holds, that the Democrats are, are you know, want to sing kumbaya with, with, 
with everyone on the planet. I think the the, the left, and I and I have to probably pepper this answer with some of my own personal views that that there's a that the that the that the Muslim community has a radical element to it that is essentially hijacking or or speaking for the vast majority, and unfortunately that that is that's really taking that entire community down a path where it's it's scary to think about where this is going to go especially when you have the president framing the debate that this is going to be a war for the for the for the uh for to save civilization i mean those type of that type of rhetoric is 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 biblical that that and that really and perhaps in some ways that's why they use that rhetoric to really get to and, and, and really impact um, not only their base but but other people who who can who can understand that you, you you appeal to the baser instincts but also they really need to be mindful of that of what that rhetoric also does to those radical elements uh, I mean we've all seen what happened when the Pope uh, made some comments but does that answer the question I, I think so and maybe as a follow-up question to that, are there some radical elements within the Democratic Party that's also kind of hijacked that platform too? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, you've got well, ones that pop into my mind are the radical uh, environmentalists, the the radical um, ones who want to see, uh, you know, almost you know, uh, you know, the, the eco terrorists. I think they call them. They're burning down the uh, housing housing developments, or they. Um, Unfortunately, uh, the identities of each political party are often formed by the extreme elements within that party, and that's really what, and that's a lot of times what the elements for the for the critics on both sides use as their targets on the other side. I mean, the Republicans, you know, call the Democrats hippies, and the Democrats call the Republicans. Uh, you know, Bible thumpers. Or greedy pigs. Yes. <laughs> greedy capitalists. Yes. So it's 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 it, we're we're all, we're we're defined by stereotypes, and a lot of times we live up to the stereotypes, which makes it easy for both sides to have their way with with the other side in debates. Have you seen the works of Michael Moore? And if so, what do you think of them? I I haven't actually. I haven't I have an interesting story about Michael Moore that. Uh, when he did, well, my father, my father, I'm, I'm actually from Flint originally, just north of Flint. And, and Michael Moore's first film, uh, Roger and Me, was of course about Flint. And that was a very good movie. Yep, yep. He worked with, he worked on the motor line uh, with my best friend's dad. And uh, years later, when the film came out, a girl I was dating in high school. Her aunt is actually in the film, so it's kind of an interesting connection. But I, I've seen Roger Me, and I did not see Bowling for Columbine, but I did see Fahrenheit 9/11. I think Michael Moore is is he's he's accomplished at what he does in that being able to present a topic and a point of view that gets a visceral reaction. Um, it, I, he's almost like the Howard Stern of, of, of film. I mean, you could say the same thing about Oliver Stone. Um, I think that I found, I found Fahrenheit 9-11 entertaining. Um, 
you know there were some elements that were exaggerated, but I think on the whole it was it was it, it made it made its point. Unfortunately, I think it 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 failed in that the the controversy of what it was portending to be got out ahead of the film, and it ultimately probably hurt its message. Now, contrast that with what Al Gore has done in his film, very low key, and it's been successful in getting the message out there. Because it's not, he's, there isn't this juggernaut of press saying, you know, the, the, the world is going to end. You've got to see this film, so we're going to tell you what's, what, you know, so you're completely informed. It's almost like a, a nice little gradual buildup that people who have, and I have not seen the film. I've seen, I've seen excerpts. Um, unfortunately, I haven't seen it yet. But reading the reviews and talking to people who have seen the film, they come out of there like, gosh, I didn't, you know, this this really made me think. I mean, they didn't buy into the whole thing, and I think everybody should ultimately make their own decision. They should do their own research. They should they should come to their own conclusions. But people who saw the film, it was thought provoking. Whereas Michael Moore's film, it was a cut and dried. You either like it or you don't, and you made that decision before you even saw the film. And even though, and even when people went to see the film their predisposed notions of what the film was going to be were not shaken by what they saw. They had formed their opinion so strongly that you couldn't get the message through. If, you know, if In other words, they were just reinforcing what people went into the theater with anyways. Exactly. I mean, look, you know, look when the film was released. It was released ahead of the, ahead of the elections. It was, it, was, it was targeted to, I think try to uh, scare some of the more moderate voters to look at look at this guy and, and, and you know look what look who he is and what he's done and and uh, gosh you know don't don't vote for this guy and I think ultimately I would say to some degree that film probably hurt some of John Kerry's chances at re-election and that was because the Democrats kind of embraced Michael Moore in the beginning because I I mean you know he's seen with Jimmy Carter and a lot of prominent Democrats and then Everybody started saying, "Yeah," at least from the the moderate independent. Right, right. It's it's so difficult to uh, for for any candidate who has who has ran for the presidency over the past, gosh, four or five elections. They've all been people who have had such a long list and a storied history. Um, in Washington and their high profile, that those associations, I mean, we haven't really had anybody run for office that has been a, a, clean, a clean slate, if you will, somebody who's, who's, who's not an insider or somebody who hasn't spent, like, you know, 20 years in Washington. Or, or, and I think for a lot of people, um, I think that's why you end up with, with essentially the two-party system the way it is, that, that everything is so old guard. Everything is so established that it's very difficult for anyone to come in from the outside and make a run at it because everybody's lining up saying, "Well, no, I've been in the I've been in the party. I've been I've been the water bearer for 25 years, starting in city council, and darn it, it's my turn, and I'm going to run, and and I'm, I, I need the support." And and unfortunately, that's one of the problems with with what I think what we're facing with our system is is there's really such a a barrier to entry for for candidates for for real good candidates that could get in and actually do something. But don't you also think that that's a test? Don't you think that by paying your dues, if you will, that you are also proving your leadership and also your effectiveness? 
I, I, I would agree with you. I think um, I think where I was probably trying, what well, I think I was speaking about were the um, the ones who have been like like let's say Bob Dole, um, statesman, uh, good gentleman. He 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 had been in office for a long time, and I think when it came around, my personal opinion is is that it was Republicans said, you know what, we're not going to stand in his way. He's he's done his job. He's he's been he's been with us for a long time. Let him let him have a run at it. I think I think there has you have to you absolutely you have to pay your dues. You have to show your you have to show yourself as someone who um, is is loyal to the party. It works their way up. I don't think people should just um, you know wake up one morning and 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 run for an office that they're not qualified for doing. I mean I I mean you can't you can't go from city council to being a U.S. senator. What do you think are the traits of a good presidential candidate? Well, I personally, I'd like to see someone who has a more um, has a has a has a a much better understanding of what what it is to be middle class or or lower middle class in the country. And honestly, I think really the only way that you can have that type of experience is if you came up that way. Um, with with the with the Herbert Walker Bush and George W. Bush, um, they both come from very wealthy families. And you know, so did John Kennedy, and, and so did a number of other um, presidential. Yeah, Al Gore. Al Gore was, was really just groomed from birth to be president of the United States. And I and I think along the way, a disconnect happens where you really can't understand. You really cannot understand people who are working two jobs and and have to and then their Medicaid doesn't cover their prescriptions and they have to make a decision between eating or getting you know getting you know food that week or getting their medication. I mean those those types of real world problems and, and, and situations that, that so many people in the country face every day. Could not even. I don't believe people of a of a certain strata can even comprehend, because they've never had to worry about. Like for me, for example, uh, twelve years ago, um, well, I didn't have I didn't have health insurance, so it's always on your mind to take care of yourself in the winter, to to make sure that you you know you you. you you, you go out of your way. You know, you dress really warm. You, you you try not to. You get your sleep. You make sure you don't get sick, because you couldn't afford to go into the doctor to get to get the medication. Because you know, even if you got like a generic brand of of amoxicillin or something, that's still going to set you back like forty, sixty bucks, and that's that's a lot of money. And I think that to a lot of people, those are dilemmas they face. And 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 I think in a presidential candidate, you can't sit up there and talk about reforming health care with, with talking out of the side of your mouth when you've never had to worry about that. You've never had to be confronted with those issues uh, on a real-world basis. I, I'd like to see a presidential candidate that, has, that, that, that can speak to that. And, and I, honestly, I think the only way that you can really speak to some issues like that is having to gone through them. And, and you bring up a really good point and something that I hadn't thought of in years and back when George Bush Sr. was running for president, right before the election, he went to a grocery store, and he was just amazed at the electronic scanner 
that you and I always see every time we check out our groceries. I remember that. And I just thought to myself, you you lost my vote just because of that. If you don't understand that this is the way everyday Americans live, then you have no idea what's going to be best or representative for me as a voter. Exactly. And a lot of people say that that, that some people point to that as losing him the election. Because you're absolutely right. He walked in there and, and, and he said something like, uh, oh, what, what is this? Yeah, how does this work? <laughs> well, it, well, isn't that something? You mean everyday people just walk up and scan? Well, I've never seen anything quite like that. And it, it's unfortunate that that our government and our, and, our, and our way of government, especially on the national level, is, is, a, is a bubble. And, and that's why I believe you have such a, such a, a disconnect. And, and that's why, you know, honestly, there really isn't that much difference between the two parties now. They exist to perpetuate their, uh, their old boys club. Um, Paul Hackett, uh, Iraq War veteran, Ohio. Uh, running for Senate, um, Chuck Hagel, or I, mean, it was a Chuck, it was a, I think it was Chuck Schumer, beg your pardon, Chuck Schumer, essentially put the kibosh on that. And although uh, Hackett wouldn't wouldn't say too much, I, I, I read it, I listened to a couple of interviews with him, but it was essentially that you know they they pulled the funding. The senator senators on the Hill picked up the phone and called the donors and said, you know, we want you supporting this guy anymore. We want we want we want this guy who was a who was a regular, you know, old boys club, we're going to support him. And they pulled the funding. I understand what you were saying earlier about paying your dues, but, but what, kind of, what kind of political system are, are, we, are we living in where the everyday person has the rug pulled out from underneath them simply because they want to perpetuate the same old, same old? How are we going to get any kind of, of, of uh, change um, when, when you have that sort of, uh, mechanism in place to, to, as a barrier to entry for for regular people who want to who want to run for office and try to do some good. I mean, it's, it's, it's right, and 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 what I think will take is that it will take somebody that comes from a say an everyday common background that is elected to House of Representatives and then goes into the Senate and then and goes up through the ladder and hopefully doesn't forget where they came from. You know, you, you mentioned Bob Dole. Bob Dole impressed me as one of those guys that uh, didn't forget where he came from. Although, you know, he spent a lot of time in the Senate, he also had a lot of good Midwestern roots that, for me, I could relate to. Uh, Ronald Reagan kind of had that. Um, the Bushes don't. Um, to a degree, Kerry didn't. Um, Jimmy Carter did. You know, you can... You can commiserate with with his upbringings but there almost has to be somebody that goes through the process that changes it from the inside instead of somebody just fresh up from the outside coming in and saying i want to change all the rules well i think that's very true and 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 really that the only way my my uh prediction or vision of, of of what is eventually going to happen is you're going to have a group of junior reps or junior senators who are going to come into office and they're going to, and they're going to form a group and they're going to say this needs to change and they're going to slowly exert their influence to, to for and, and and have the old guard push the old guard out 
Um, be, be, and, and you're right, they can't forget where they came from. They can't, I mean, being a, an elected uh, politician in this country is, is, in my opinion, is not meant to be a job. I mean, this country would do well to have farmers and, and doctors and teachers serve two, four, six years in the House. I mean, to bring that sort of humility and real-world experience into the chamber, um, more so for the Senate, but, you know, I mean, you can debate what the founders had in mind regarding when they, when they created the Senate. I mean, there's, there's some people who argue that the Senate was never meant to be for the common people. It was meant to be for the cream of the crop. Um, but I, I think we could do well to 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 have a much bread, much broader representation of our of our nation, not only from a from an occupational standpoint, but from uh, from from cultures. I mean, we're still dealing with we got what one woman senator, um, I, I, minority representation. I mean, you know, I know the I know there's there's some more conservative factions in the country who don't appreciate or understand the minority uh how much uh how much of the minority representation there is in the country and how much they make up our our everyday communities where i live metro detroit is is one of if not the most ethnically diverse areas in the country um where i live i have pakistanis russians ukrainians indians hindus um Lebanese. You've got a true melting pot. Through my house. And, and and what type of occupations are they? Factory workers or are they? I think it runs the gamut. I mean, we got some. We got some. Uh, uh, one lady's. Uh, she runs a bakery. Um, they brought that over from the Ukraine. Um, some are teachers. Because um, I, I live in I live in a fairly you know middle class neighborhood. Um, really, all occupations. And, and one of the one of the great things about it is I love bringing my son up in this area, because what I really want to impress upon my son is 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 that, and one of the things I have a problem with with the president, is the world is a lot bigger than the United States, and especially with the trade deficits and how much money that China is holding of our debt, that it's going to be it's going to be a very rude wake up call in the next couple of years when. People start calling on that debt, and we realize that we're not, you know, we're not necessarily the big economic boy on the block anymore. And you need to appreciate where people come from in the world that we live in. It's, it's extremely diverse. I think it was very telling that the president never traveled outside the country. He didn't have a passport before he was elected president. I mean, you have to have that perspective of, of where we are in the world with the Internet, with the with global communications and, 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 and how everything is so interconnected. I mean, we could debate, you know, free trade, but, I mean, it's here. And, and, and China is going to clean our clock economically unless we, we reinvest in ourselves and, and re-look at, reassess and reevaluate where we are in the world and make some changes. It's, it's definitely uh, something that a lot of people are not going to be happy about because it's going to challenge their their traditional viewpoints, but um, some of the younger people coming up, and, and it's it's very uh, it's 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 very uh, common to them. What's the big local news story of the day in Detroit? Well, we had that teacher strike. Um, How are the 
layoffs at Ford and some of the other car manufacturers being seen in Detroit? Well, there's a lot of people who are who are worried, understandably. Um, the there was a there was a news story this morning that Ford and GM may be looking at a consolidation, maybe looking at a way to work together. Um, my father still works at General Motors. He's been there 42 years. Um, he's definitely going to get his money out of his pension when he leaves. But he was—I I was talking to him just a short time ago, and GM offered the buyouts um, to the hourly workers. And there were a number of people, younger people, who saw the money. They saw the seventy-five, eighty thousand-dollar buyout, and like, wow, you know, I can—I can grab that money. I can go buy a boat. I can do this and that. And they signed the agreement. They walked out. And my dad's saying, these guys don't realize what they're doing. They have no health care now. I mean, everything was gone. I mean, and when they run through that money, they go buy themselves a boat or put up a pole barn or something. And, and you know, two years down the line, they have no more money. What are they going to do? So there's a lot of uneasiness. Um, but unfortunately, this is, it's, it's what's been going on in this area of the, of the country for, for so many years that, Every time contract negotiations come around for the for the UAW and the union, they have to they always try to to get in there some kind of job security measures. But ultimately, in a free market economy, how can you make those types of guarantees? I mean, you can't. Who do you think is going to be on the Democratic ticket come two thousand eight? Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Feingold. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say he's the one that's that's gonna rise to the top. I'm gonna go out on a limb. <laughs> And who do you think is going to be his vice presidential running mate? Wow. I think you're going to see probably probably a senator or maybe another southern governor. It's possible Obama might do it. Uh, How about Vilsack from Iowa? You know, I've heard his name um, a couple of times. I don't really know too much about the gentleman, um, but I had heard his—I have heard his name bantered about in some of those lists that come out with people, you know, trying to handicap the the 08 election already. Yeah, I've met Tom several times, and I think he would—he would be a good vice presidential candidate, you know, for for Iowa. You know, he's—he's—he's he's, he's done okay. He hasn't done really great, but he hasn't done that bad either. But I, I do think that. He's more of a common guy. And uh, the other ticket that I always think about that, that could be good would be a Hillary Vilsack ticket. So let me ask you this. Do you think Hillary should continue her bid, or do you think she should give it up for 2008? I, I would not like to see her run. And I was thinking about this the other day. If Hillary were to run for office and get, and get elected, we would be looking at I need to... We would be looking at, since 1992, having either a Bush or a Clinton in office. Yeah. That, that is just unconscionable to me. That's, that's a ridiculous amount of years that, that we've essentially had a two-family rule in the country. Um, one of the things I talked about in one of my last shows is I think that for the good of the party, she should choose, and, and, and for the sake of having a Democrat get elected, she should not run simply because she is such a polarizing figure. And ultimately, um, if she were to get elected, it would be four more years of the same, 
whereas if the Republicans were able to maintain one of the houses, it would just be it would be vitriolic. You know, we have another Clinton in the White House, and we're going to sit here and we're not going to let your legislative agenda go anywhere. Who do you think the Republicans are going to serve up? Oh, I think, uh, oh, gosh, I'm drawing, drawing a blank on his name. The Senate Majority Leader, Frist, is going to run. I don't think he's going to get that far. He's still got that uh, no. that uh, Security and Exchange Commission investigation over him. Um, and the gas thing, too. Yes, yes. Here's 100 bucks. Don't <laughs> let us drill in Alaska. I don't think Cheney's going to run. I think he's. I think he's done. No, and Cheney would be a. He, you know, he's one of those guys that makes a good vice president. Cheney is is what I would call the prototypical vice president. Mm-hmm. Um, Gore was a good vice president mm-hmm. because of the connections, but um, Cheney would not be a good president. I think for a Republican, I have to think here for a second. Um, I had some names the other day I was thinking of. Uh, I, I, uh, the, all the gentlemen out in uh, Arizona, the governor of Arizona. Not McCain. No, not McCain. The, um, McCain, McCain, I believe, is going to run. I, I, unfortunately, he's, he's as much of a hypocrite in the eyes of the Republican Party as he is for the Democrats. Now, I voted for him in the primary in Michigan, the primary he took from Bush. Um, running up to the, the 2000 election. But I think what you've seen with McCain is that he's, he's sold out, that he has... Well, there's a, let me back up. A friend of mine once said that you have to be somewhat insane to want to be president, certifiably insane, that, that, you, that there's a part of you that is so narcissistic that you want it so bad that that you're willing to do anything it takes to get there. And I think that's what we're seeing with McCain now, that he is that he is siding with elements that in the past he has just slammed. He is using some of the same fundraising apparatus that, that the president had in place. He's being very careful with his language regarding some of the president's proposals. So no matter what, whoever we elect is a sick, twisted individual. <laughs> That's what my friend thinks. I, I think there's still room for people who really want to hold the office for what it for what it should be and to do right by the country. If I'm going to do the crystal ball thing, mm-hmm. I'm going to say it's Hillary and McCain, and McCain wins. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it, it's it's way too early to tell. Yeah. Tom, it's time to play Ask Bill 3. And this is the point where I get to turn the microphone over to you, and you get to ask me three questions about anything. So fire away. All right, Bill. Uh, this question is to see just how big of a Journey fan you are. Greg Raleigh or Jonathan Kane? who's your preference? Wow. Um, I think I've been listening. You know, I'm not a big ballad guy, and um, I like Kane with the babies a lot. Yeah. But, um, you know, the sappy ballads, for me, kind of killed the band. So, uh, so I'll pick Greg. It was a, I, you're right. That, the band at that point was just, it was, it was good harmonies, too. Oh, yeah. Just a really, and that's, actually that's what a lot of people said. That's why Greg left the band, was that he, he didn't like the direction that they were going. Well, I think he was jealous, too, because he was 
pretty much the lead singer. And, I mean, he was a lead singer in, in Santana. And along comes this kid by the name of Steve Perry, who's got the pipes yeah. like nobody else. And, um, you know, on, especially on uh, the duos uh, like uh, Same Way and, and all that, I mean, you know, Perry just takes over the song. But you're thinking for yourself, you like Rawlings better. I, I yeah. Well, I like I like the whole I like everything in the Journey catalog. But those those early years, I I really there, there's a there's a there's a rawness and a freshness to the to the seventies uh, rock bands. I mean, you know, starting well, you know, you go back to Credence, but up through uh, up through the the, the late seventies, there's such a there's such a freshness and a rawness to those to those bands that you know. Just really, really uh, stands up today. What's question number two? Question number two in your uh, your years of radio experience, I wanted to ask you: What is your personal opinion as to uh, why terrestrial radio has suffered the decline it has? What 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 do you what do you attribute that to? There are several factors. Um, the first factor is over-commercialization, and that comes from the pressures from, oh, making the buck because the owners bought the radio station at more than it was really worth. Being an insider, I can say that. Was there a lot of that going on in the industry? Um, yeah, toward the, toward the end of the 90s. There were, you know, a lot of stations were just being bought at multiples, it used to be the multiple to buy a radio station was, when I first started, was like two times cash flow. And it went up to eight. And then it went up to 12. <laughs> and so what happened was the pressure was put on the sales staff then to you know turn a buck. And so you had a lot of over-commercialization. So, so that will be one factor. Uh, the next factor I'll throw out there, which is what I call eating your young. And back in the 80s, a lot of stations, they had trouble making ends meet. 50% of all radio stations in the 80s didn't make a single dime. And along came automation. And what automation did is it was able to take the talent and instead of having to man your radio station 24-7, you might be able to just do it during the daytime and then um, eliminate your nighttime positions. But then what happened was we're not only going to eliminate the daytime positions, but now we're going to eliminate basically everything but the morning show. What that means then is for anybody that wants to get into the business is that the only real positions they have are production and or the morning show. And how many people fresh out of broadcasting school are ready for the morning show? When I was starting out, me and the guys I worked with, we were all able to make our mistakes from midnight to six in the morning. And that was a great training ground. And, you know, the more you do it, the better you get. Well, that, that's what happened with, with a lot of the announcers like myself was we were able to make the mistakes at night where nobody was really caring and so that prepared us for uh, afternoon drive or midday shift or whatever. And those positions aren't out there anymore. You know, you can't, for the most part, go on midnight to six and make your mistakes on radio. You've got to be good right out of the box. So those are some of the factors that I would 
say are the decline of terrestrial radio. Now, where did, where did Clear Channel come into that, in that chronology? About the middle 90s. Were they the ones that introduced the autom- automation? No, the automation's been around probably since the middle to back end of the 80s. And I remember a few systems that came out. Matter of fact, I, I bought stock in a company called the Satellite Music Network in 1985. And it was then bought by ABC. And I remember making some, some good money off that. But the, I bought that stock because some, a salesperson came into the radio station and said, you know, here's a way for you to cut down your overhead. And I said, what a great idea. I won't sign up, but I'll buy your stock because I think you're going to do well. And, um, you know, so that's how it kind of started and, and, and built its way up. But then all of a sudden, about the middle 90s, people started buying radio stations at, at increased multitudes and just throwing money out there, just literally throwing money out there. And some of the old-time broadcasting operators, you know, they'd be fools to say no. I mean, you know, you bought it at, you know, 10, 15 years ago for 200000 and now it's worth $3 million. Yeah, okay. Here's three, you know, here's your radio station, and I get a check for $3 million. I can understand that. But it didn't do much for the industry as long term. But, you know, it's not, maybe not their duty to hold up the entire industry either. Right. What's question number three? Question number three I'm going to throw a political question back at you. Um, If you were President Bush, what would you have done differently? in conducting the war on terror. Hindsight being 2020, it's to have a contingency plan after you have beat Saddam's army. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's a lot of, to be said for not going in at all. And there's a lot to be said for going in after those guys, too. Because, you know, I, I don't think there's any issue more important than killing the guys who want to kill us. Mm-hmm. And it... You know, it's like the elections. It's too early to tell. Was that a, a good choice or bad choice? You know, we won't know for another 10, 15 years. I, I do agree with the president that, you know, since we're there, we better win it or else it's going to get real bad. But, um, you know, the contingency plan is something that really stands out. And I think they got this this confidence that we're just going to go in there and we're going to kick butt and then everybody's going to be on our side, and they're going to love us because they got rid of Saddam Hussein, and that just wasn't the case. And I think that really threw him off guard. And I, th- I think, um, I think Cheney in one of the latest episodes of uh, Meet the Press said something like that: that hey, you know what? We we kind of thought we'd go in there and and be the liberators, and they just didn't see us as that. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, to be honest, back in 2003, I was in favor of the war. And I think most Americans were. But, um, you know, getting in is a whole lot different from getting out. What would you do? Oh, I think I, I, think I probably would have wanted to have made sure that Afghanistan was taken care of. I, I, I haven't, I've made it pretty clear on my show that I think that, that a lot of the issues that the president has with Saddam have to do with his dad and that they're, 
that there he's trying to make a point not only to the to the people in his administration that were with his father, but also also to his father that you know I was able to do something that that you weren't able to do, and that I think that they there really wasn't a cause for going into Iraq. I mean they can they can claim you know and, and history will tell. Like you said, we may we we won't know for another decade or so. But I think that... Or, or the other thing you can say is that uh, maybe George Bush Sr. knew what he was doing but not going all the way. Well, there, there's there's many people who say that, that even um, um, the gentleman, uh, I can't think of his name, but the gentleman who uh, ran his campaign in Florida who was with uh, with Bush Sr. Talked to, talked to the president and said, you know what, um, Or that's why we didn't go, because we knew... That there was, there's, you're going to have these the Sunni factions, and you're going to have all of these. It would be a nightmare. Now, at the time, um, I respected. I mean, I know there was a lot of people who really just, just was rallying against Bush 41 for not doing it, and, and and I was only like 19, 20 at the time, 21, and I remember saying to myself, you know, what? I respect him for doing what he said in the UN mandate. We're just going to we're going to get Saddam out of Kuwait, and they stopped. And I said, why are, you, why are you beating up on the guy for just doing what he said he was going to do? And I always, I always felt that way. I always respected that, that, you know, yeah, we could have kept going to Baghdad and we could have taken him out. And, but behind all that, there was this whole uh, group of thinkers who said, you know, we, couldn't, we, we wouldn't be able to contain this. And, you know, all, all we did is we put the lid back on the bottle for another, you know, another ten years, and uh, ten, fifteen years, and then a lot of those, a lot of those same uh, tensions, those same uh, feelings between the ethnic groups have been there for centuries, and uh, and it's, it was just a matter of of, of time, uh, or rather a, a matter of when when we went in there that they were going to overflow, they were going to boil over. But Saddam wasn't helping the situation either. I mean, he was puffing up his chest and rattling the sabers and all that. And there was a lot of international concern that he had these weapons, and and he wasn't disputing that at all. I remember reading an reading an interview with uh, one of the one of the debriefings they did for a couple of Saddam's high high end uh, generals, and they believed up until like a couple weeks before we began the invasion. That they that they had the weapons, and he called them into a room and he says, uh, "I don't have anything." And they were like, they were just like, "What?" And they and and not only were they upset at, that the leader had misled them, but that they had no way to defend themselves. They knew at that point that we have nothing. And he he fooled everybody. He he misled everybody, even his top generals. Yeah, we all the world called his bluff. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately for for. All the wrong reasons were we may be there. Yeah. Tom, do you want to tell about your show and how people can subscribe to the Left Wing Nut Job podcast? And also, I think you've got an internet radio project as well. Yep. Um, you can uh, find the show at uh, leftwingnutjob.com, uh, or you can get me through iTunes or Podcast Pickle. I do a, uh, I recently uh, joined a, ZTLK.com, which is a narrow-cast internet radio station, which is uh, 
talk talk based. And there's a, a couple of shows that were podcasts, and we're doing. I do an hour show now. Listeners who listen to my show in the past, I would sometimes do a 10, 15, 20-minute show. Now i got to do an hour a week, which is a lot of work, which is uh, because I really am uh, I'm a perfectionist. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with it for a while. I'm going to see what I can do with this. I'm having a lot of fun. Tom, good luck with the show, and thank you so much for being our guest this week on You Are the Guest. Thank you, Bill. If you'd like to be a guest on a future show, just go to our website at www.youaretheguest.com. Submit your first name, the town where you live, and a short description on why you'd make a good guest. There is no charge for being a guest, and you'll have the opportunity to share what you think and how the news and events from today affect your life. The show's producers will contact you by email if you're chosen for a future show. Remember that you can listen to the show every day at Coolcast Radio. And, of course, we always appreciate your subscriptions at iTunes and Yahoo Podcasts. That concludes this week's edition of You Are the Guest from the great city of Fort Dodge, Iowa. I'm Bill Grady. Thanks for listening.